Welcome to the Engines of Texanity, Episode 2, The Font of Texas Government. I'm Brandon Seal. When Don Juan de Oñate crossed the Rio Grande on May 4, 1598, at a spot which he called El Paso del Rio del Norte, he didn't just bring with him the horses that would redraw the map of native Texas. He brought with him 539 colonists, intent on establishing Spanish government in the northernmost reaches of Spanish North America. We talked about this at some length in Season 4 when we discussed the origins of Mexican federalism, but something I know I didn't appreciate at the time was how ancient and vibrant this tradition of Spanish self-government was. The Spanish tradition, particularly in respect to citizens of cities, typically guaranteed freedom of commerce, the inviolability of the home, and inheritance rights for women. In fact, in 1188, King Alonso IX of Leon had convened the first parliament in Europe, and it included representatives of propertied commoners, all of this 27 years before the English Magna Carta, and nearly a century before any commoners would be admitted to the English parliament. And the Comunero revolts of the 16th century in large Spanish cities rang out with appeals to the consent of all and the general will two centuries before those same terms would flow from the pens of English and French writers. Yet the Spanish model of self-government was built around the city-state, around the ciudad, the villa, or the pueblo, the latter a word which suggests the representative nature of their elected councilmen, clerks, and mayors, And so all up through the central Mexican highlands, the Spanish Empire established a string of self-governing municipalities to process the mineral wealth of the Sierra Madre. We're talking about Querétaro, Zacatecas, Durango, towns made famous by their prodigious silver output. New World Mines would soon septuple, that's 7x, the silver supply of Europe, and they made many Spaniards, like Don Juan de Oñate's conquistador father, fantastically wealthy. And yet mining actually produced only about a quarter as much as agriculture did in Spanish North America. And that agricultural output, particularly as Spanish marched up into the hot, arid north, was attributable almost entirely to the Spanish ability to construct and administer large, complex irrigation systems. Flood irrigation, or gravity-fed irrigation, represents one of the great innovations in human history. Flood irrigation involves redirecting water, usually from the top of an impressed stream, la presa in Spanish, redirecting it downhill to smaller canals, which could then be backed up by means of floodgates to overflow and irrigate the surrounding fields. Flood irrigation allowed societies to control the when and the how much of water, making farming far less of a gamble. And it represented a fantastic return on energy invested. According to energy scholar Vaclav Smil, a flood irrigation system could easily return at least 10 times the energy invested in terms of calories, often closer to 30. And these systems could endure for hundreds, even thousands of years. But for a flood irrigation system to work, you have to get the engineering just right. Too steep of a run will wash out your canal. Too shallow and the ground will drink your water before it gets to where you want it to go. The Romans had first brought the science of irrigation to the Iberian Peninsula, but it was the Arabs who truly irrigated it. And the evidence is in the language. The Spanish word for an irrigation ditch is acequia, from the Arab alasaquia. The Spanish for a water well is anoria, from a similar-sounding Arab word, 
which initially referred to a water-lifting wheel, among others. Just in the south of Spain alone, there are today something like 15,000 miles of irrigation ditches, most of them dating back to the centuries of Arab rule, and many of them still operating. Oñate brought this old-world legacy with him when he crossed the Rio Grande in 1598. But in the same way that he carried in his veins the blood of both the old world and the new, he was a great-grandson of Hernán Cortés and a great-great-grandson of Montezuma. He also brought a new world legacy of flood irrigation with him that was perhaps more ancient even than that of Spain's. When Cortés had conquered Tenochtitlan, he had done it side by side with the Tlaxcalans, a native people that had fought off Aztec subjugation for hundreds of years. The Tlaxcalans could claim their own legacy of constructing irrigation systems dating back to as early as 800 BC. And like irrigated Spanish municipalities, these Tlaxcalans governed themselves through elected representatives, reminding Cortés of little Italian republics, in his word, in a sea of autocratic empires. The Spanish had recognized early on that the Tlaxcalans were different, and so they had conferred upon them special privileges and brought them along as the engineers who actually built the flood irrigation systems upon which civil society in Spanish North America came to depend. One scholar has written that the administration of flood irrigation systems was Spanish city government's, quote, most important responsibility, end quote. After 1681, in fact, it was actually a requirement spelled out in the law of the Indies that all American ayuntamientos or city councils had to appoint a water judge to oversee the, quote, allotment of the waters, end quote. This alliance of Spanish and Tlaxcalan irrigators marched steadily north through the Sierra Madre Oriental, founding cities like Saltillo, Parras de la Fuente, Monclova, and later San Juan Bautista in Coahuila, and Monterrey and Bustamante in Nuevo León. Don Juan de Oñate's expedition actually represented the spearhead of the Spanish Tlaxcalan colonization up through the Tierra Adentro, the inland route, right through the heart of the continent. And so if Oñate's chronicler sounds like a hydraulic engineer when he described the future site of El Paso, it's because he might very well have been. Quote, Joyfully we tarried beneath the pleasant shade of the wide-spreading trees which grew along the riverbanks. End quote. This location was also, according to modern-day residents, the first spot on which a Thanksgiving was celebrated on future United States soil. Oñate didn't stop in El Paso. He continued north several hundred more miles up into New Mexico to a spot known in the local native language as the, quote, water place. The natives of this water place, the Spanish gave the name the Pueblos, a nod to these people's impressive adobe and stone buildings that indeed looked like a Spanish pueblo, but also perhaps a nod to the flood irrigation systems which they operated nearby. To the Spanish mind, it would have been the irrigation system more so than the buildings that would have truly marked these peoples as a pueblo. By 1659, La Villa Real de la Santa Fe de San Francisco de Asís, or Santa Fe as we call it today, had emerged as the center of Spanish settlement in New Mexico, centered around a by now well-established system of irrigation canals. Unfortunately, the relationship with the native pueblo people had deteriorated badly. Maybe the Spanish had commandeered some of their best irrigated lands. Maybe the Spanish had been a little too heavy-handed in commandeering Pueblo labor. Actually, it was worse than that. Santa Fe had emerged as a central hub for Native American slave trading. And by 1680, 
the pueblos had had enough. They revolted, killing several hundred Spaniards and expelling the rest from New Mexico for a decade, and permanently turning out the horse onto the Great Plains, as you might recall from the previous episode. The surviving Spanish, along with a few allied native tribes, like the Tiwas, retreated back to the spot where Oñate had crossed the Rio Grande 82 years prior and started rebuilding, which meant they set themselves to constructing the flood irrigation systems on which their survival and competitive advantage depended. Over the next few years, five different flood irrigated communities would pop up along a nine-mile stretch of the Rio Grande, running through the modern-day cities of El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, irrigating something like 15,000 acres. Two of those communities are today on the Texas side of the river, marking the first permanent and continuous European settlements in the state, Isleta and Socorro. Isleta, in fact, remains the home of the Tiwa Nation to this day. Further east, Spanish flood irrigation would also define the lines of European settlement of Texas. Note that Spanish attempts to settle East Texas largely failed. Flood irrigation conferred no real competitive advantage in the rainy east. But in between, it made all the difference. At a spot in central South Texas, known to the locals as Yanawana, also typically translated as something like water place or refreshing waters, hundreds of springs bubbled up from the gently sloping soil deposited by millions of years of flash floods coming off the Balcones escarpment. It was the so-called country of 1100 springs, as the old Pearl Beer commercial bragged, and according to one scholar at least, quote, it may have been the largest grouping of springs in the world at that time, end quote. I'm talking about San Antonio, of course. As they had in El Paso, the first thing the Spanish did when they settled in San Antonio in 1718 was to build their flood irrigation systems. Before they even built themselves houses, in fact. And within 50 years, that system would measure more than 50 miles, lifting the waters of the San Antonio and San Pedro rivers by means of weir dams, then diverting them through a system of canals 5 to 7 feet wide, 2 to 11 feet deep, sloping at a perfect 0.05% gradient on average, never more than 0.07 and never less than 0.02, all of this over the course of 6.5 linear miles. As in El Paso, parts of the system are still in service today, nearly 300 years later. But more than just feats of precision engineering, these flood irrigation systems were feats of human organization, which is why their administration was the most important and complicated job of local Spanish government. When the Canary Islanders arrived in San Antonio in 1731, the first thing that the presidial captain there did was assign each of them their lots along the irrigation system. And the second thing he did was preside over the election of the first European-style government in Texas to administer that irrigation system. The Canary families elected from their number six officers, one judge, one clerk, one sheriff column, two councilmen at large, and one mayordomo. The mayordomo, Antonio Rodriguez, had been an asequero back in the Canary Islands, that is, the man who managed the acequias, or irrigation canals. And this was, incidentally, his core responsibility as mayordomo in San Antonio, appointed in accordance with the 1681 Law of the Indies as the man in charge of administering the, quote, allotment of waters, end quote. And more specifically, the king charged the mayordomo in these cases with administering the water resource as a, quote, bien de uso común, end quote, a common good, which is to say, to make sure that each user got their fair share. There were two main facets to the mayordomo's job, 
one of which we can see clearly in the Texas office, which most literally descends from the mayordomo, which in Latin means master of the house. In Texas English today, we call this position the water master. Water masters in Texas today administer and operate large irrigation systems along the Rio Grande, Concho, and Brazos rivers, among others. But the other facet of the mayordomo's role comes through better in the functional translation you sometimes see of the title mayordomo, tax assessor collector. Because the mayordomo was charged not only with regulating the irrigation system, he was charged with generating revenue from it. The growth of these frontier communities depended on growing the base of arable, irrigated land. Any place that could be irrigated needed to be, and it was the mayordomo's job to make this happen. What I find really fascinating about this description of the different facets of the mayordomo's job is how well they map onto the jurisprudence of later Texas oil and gas law. Texas nominally subscribes to the rule of capture, but Texas courts and the Railroad Commission have spent a century modifying that common law rule to better fit the resource and the region. To understand how Texas actually administers oil and gas, my old law school professor Ernie Smith taught us that you need to balance the facts of the case against three factors. One, is everyone getting their fair share? Two, are we preventing waste of the resource? And three, are we promoting the development of the resource? Well, what does that sound like to you? That is the old mayordomo's mandate. At this distance, anyway, it sure seems like Texas's approach to irrigation administration laid the foundation more broadly for what you might call the Texas or frontier model of regulation, which contrasts to the Anglo-American approach, which is very uncomfortable with regulators acting as promoters of the industries they regulate and typically focuses on making sure that no economic actor unduly profits from their position in the market. In practice, however, this slides pretty imperceptibly into a, a sort of implicit guarantee that none of the regulated actors should ever have to lose money. Think of the American banking system, for example. I feel like the Anglo-American system works better when the centers of economic and political power are close to each other and close to the economic activity being regulated and when there's plenty of economic activity to regulate. In those cases, regulator and regulated can readily and frequently negotiate with each other, and mistakes can be fixed without too much lasting damage. That model works poorly on distant frontiers with scarce resources, however, or for people who are far removed from the centers of power where they might be able to better advocate for their interests. The viceroy in Mexico City never could have managed El Paso's irrigation system so well as El Pasoans could, any more than Washington, D.C. could have managed the development of Texas's early oil industry to the satisfaction of Texans. I asked friend of the podcast and attorney Guillermo Alarcón to help me find a direct link between Spanish irrigation law and today's general Texas frontier regulatory model, because that'd be a really powerful thing to find. There's a bunch of other places where Texas courts have adopted the Spanish model over the Anglo-American one, such as for the rules around venue and the role of independent executors of wills, not to mention the inviolability of the home and the inheritance rights of women, which come through into the modern day as Texas's famed homestead exemption and, uh, and in the community property regime. The closest that Guillermo could come, however, to linking Spanish irrigation law to Texas's regulatory model more generally was the Irrigation Act of 1852, where Texas counties were explicitly given the authority to regulate the construction and operation of irrigation works, quote, similar to the former regulatory power of the community alcalde system of Spanish and Mexican law, end quote. Which is something. 
Guillermo also found an interesting case from 1868 where the Texas Supreme Court essentially rejected Anglo-American common law as it pertains to rivers and chose instead to prioritize irrigation over industry, claiming that this was clearly the intent of the colonization laws of Coahuila y Texas. Again, a clear nod to the Spanish legal tradition. But if I'm being honest, Guillermo and I couldn't really find a case on point linking Texas's oil and gas law or Texas's distinct regulatory model to the Spanish Flood Irrigation Administration that preceded it. And yet that, in and of itself, may be an even more powerful conclusion in light of how similar the systems have developed. If different legal systems in different fields and from different cultural traditions all evolve into similar final forms, well, that says something powerful about the people and the place that are shaping those systems. It helps, perhaps, to validate those people's sense of their own exceptionalism. Exceptional even if only because their environment forced them to become so. At the very least, we can definitely say that flood irrigation established European-style government in Texas. On its own, however, flood irrigation wasn't sufficient to confer upon Spaniards any real competitive advantage over native Texas populations. Texas, as late as 1821, remained a, quote, decidedly Indian domain, end quote. And the bulk of the new Mexican Department of Texas more properly belonged to the Lipan Apaches and Comanches who, according to a contemporary, quote, at all times have been masters of the possessions and lives, end quote, of the inhabitants of the province. For now, at least, the horse remained more powerful than any irrigation system or any civil government for that matter. After the ravages of the Battle of Medina, and after years of attacks by mounted Lipanes and Comanches, San Antonio's population by 1821 was half of what it had been 15 years prior. And that's in part because many Tejanos had taken refuge in Natchitoches, Louisiana, where they had a front-row seat to an economic revolution the likes of which they'd never seen. Land that was worth pennies an acre just decades before was selling now for dollars land that frankly looked a lot like the land that Tejanos knew well on their side of the Sabine River. The cotton economy was about to burst onto the Texas scene and redraw the political, economic, and demographic lines of the state. On the next episode of The Engines of Texanity. Thank you for listening. Special thanks again this episode to my friend Guillermo Alarcón, who is also the attorney who joined me last August at the Battle of Medina Symposium to explain all the protections that landowners have against their property being taken in the event that historical artifacts are found on it. Here's the short version. This is Texas. Property rights are king. And actually, the next episode will help trace the psychological origins of, of the sacrosanctness of land in Texas. This season is brought to you by the 11th Street River House in Bandera, Texas. Sort of. My wife and I have dreamed for years about owning a place in Bandera, and we finally bought a house there last year. Four blocks from the bars, three blocks from the Frontier Times Museum, with 120 feet of Medina River frontage, and a collection of historic Texas maps on the wall, curated by yours truly. It's a great place to spend a weekend and to sort of indirectly support this podcast. Look it up under 11th Street River House on Airbnb or on VRBO. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. Stephen Bennett also composed and performed the theme music. You can find more about Stephen at info at nosomedia, N-O-S-O-Media.com. David Moore designed the cover art for this season. You can find him at illustrationonline.com. 
For more information on our sources and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com.